right, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Thanks for being here. I want to give a special welcome to anyone who might be a guest with us today. We always love welcoming guests into our services and want to greet all those folks who are joining us online. If you got a Bible with you, let me hear your pages turning to the New Testament book of Philippians. And when you get to the book of Philippians, find chapter four, because that's where we're going to spend our time this morning, Philippians chapter four. What a great blessing it was to have Michael and Carolina Kupchik with us in our worship team today. Michael and Carolina have uh, three children, three little girls. Michael told me last night he was starting a women's ministry in his home. So they have three little girls, <clears throat> and uh, they have been a part of Pro-Am Ministries, which is a faithful partner of ours for many, many years. And they also are part of a, a worship band in Poland called Exodus 15. And uh, they are very gifted and talented people, and we love when we get the opportunity to rub shoulders up close and personal with people that we uh, serve and people that we support in other parts of the world. And before I go any further, I got to remember to say this, because uh, the month of November every year at Mount Pleasant is a time when we talk about what it looks like to be good managers of all that God has entrusted to us, I want to tell you that just outside the doors in uh, this first opening area out here, there's a table set up on what is my left as I stand here looking at the back doors uh, for our financial freedom ministry. And after the service, you can stop there and learn about signing up for Financial Peace University and the legacy journey that both begin next year on the weekend of January the 21st. And like we have uh, done the past couple of years, we have bought down the price of that so it only costs you $10. So if you're struggling, honestly, in your life and your family in the area of financial management, making ends meet for just $10, you can spend nine weeks in a program that will help you take real positive steps from week one on being a better manager of what God has entrusted to you, $10. Financial Peace University, the legacy journey, stop by the financial ministry table on the way out the door. This is a message series during the month of November called Faithful. What we're doing is we're talking about what it looks like to be faithful with whatever amount of money that God has entrusted to you, whether it's a little or a lot. And we're doing that by looking at four specific words, ownership, stewardship, which means management, contentment, and generosity. We've already talked about ownership. We've already talked about stewardship or management. This weekend, we're going to talk about contentment. And while we're going to talk about, at the end of the message, contentment, specifically from a financial standpoint, uh, it would be foolish to think that the only area in our life where we experience discontentment is in the area of money. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try to give a little bit more of a comprehensive biblical view of how you can experience contentment in your life. And fortunately for us, the Apostle Paul gives us a great passage of Scripture in his letter to the Philippian church that helps us do that. So if you've got your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 4 and you're able this morning, I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. If you're a guest with us, this might seem strange, but we do this every week. We make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service, and because we have such respect for God's Word, such reverence and respect for God's Word, we stand together when we do it. And we got a long passage today because I'm going to read the entire fourth chapter. So suck it up and get ready. Here we go. <laughs> Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love, long for my joy and crown. This is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. And then a couple of crazy names here. He says, I plead with Yodia and Suntuke to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you have had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Somebody say amen to that. Then verse 14, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Say that with me. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Say it with me again. Amen. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask that God would bless the reading and the hearing of his word. We're going to just take this chapter apart with a really simple outline, and the outline is going to consist of four words, four specific words that have everything to do with whether or not Ordinary people like you and me have the ability to experience contentment in our lives. I'm going to take all the mystery away and tell you that the final word will, in fact, be contentment related specifically to money. So we'll be talking more about the final word than we will the first three. But understanding each of these words is critical to our ability to genuinely experience contentment in our lives, especially when we understand what contentment is from a biblical perspective. Let's talk about that for just a moment. I'm going to keep it really simple. In the language of the Old Testament... Contentment carries the idea of simply to be pleased, to live your life from a perspective where you are pleased. You're pleased with your circumstances. You're pleased with your lot in life. Whatever happens on good days and bad days, you have this feeling of being pleased in your life. In the language of the New Testament, the word contentment carries the idea of inner satisfaction. So they're very much the same. But we have to understand that it's inner satisfaction that is separate from circumstances. So it's not inner satisfaction just on good days, but it's inner satisfaction on bad days as well. It's not just inner satisfaction on joy, in joyous moments, but it can be the reality of inner satisfaction in your life, even in heartbreaking moments. This is the kind of contentment that the Bible talks about. This is the kind of contentment that God wants you and me to experience in our lives in every aspect of life. And so we're gonna talk about that based on four words from the book of Philippians. Now, the first three words are words uh, that are focused on things that rob us of our contentment. And then we're gonna talk about contentment, as I mentioned in the end, from a financial standpoint. So if you like to take notes, here's the first word. Write it down somewhere, conflict. Conflict. One of the great enemies of contentment in our daily lives is 
conflict. And we see Paul addressing that right in the beginning of Philippians chapter four in verse two when he says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Suntuki to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, we don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but apparently there were two women in the church in Philippi that were at odds with each other. We, we don't know what the problem was. There's no way to know for sure what the problem was, but just based on the little that Paul has written here, there are two things about it we can know for sure. The first thing is this, the problem was big enough that Paul felt the need in this letter to call out these two women by name. Now that's a pretty big deal, wouldn't you say? I mean, what if I got up next week and I said, hey, Ruth and Karen. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about. Get your act together. We're not leaving until you do. And so it was big enough for Paul to call them out by name. The second thing we know is the problem was small enough that Paul genuinely believed it could be worked out among the two if they were just willing to make an effort. Now let's stop and think about that for a moment. You could make the case that, that those two things apply to the majority of conflicts that we can sometimes face in the local church. And sometimes, really, what you might just need to do, even though I was trying to be silly just a moment ago, is you might just need to name the names of the people involved and then give them a direct challenge to work it out together. But here's the key component of what Paul said related to these two women in Philippians chapter four and verse two. When you look back at the verse, he said, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Suntuki to agree with each other, here it is, in the Lord, in the Lord. This is not about you now. This is not about your flesh. It's not about your pride. It's not about your ego. You need to work this out together in the Lord. And so Paul was reminding them of three things. He's reminding them, number one, of who they are, He's reminding them, number two, of who they belong to. And he's reminding them, number three, of who they are living for, or at least who they are supposed to be living for. And so he's saying, hey, ladies, you're Christians. You are followers of Jesus. So act like it and get this thing settled. Now, he did go on in Philippians chapter four and verse three to encourage other members of the church to get involved if that was necessary. But the primary responsibility we see here in the brief thing that Paul writes about this conflict is that the responsibility was on these two women. Conflict with other people. Even people who are your brothers and sisters in Christ at times will steal away your contentment. And I'm sure everybody here knows that. You ever had any conflict in your family relationships? You ever had any conflict with friendships? You ever had any conflict with other people in church? I would say that I have been fortunate. I mean, I mean I've, I've spent my entire life in church. I'm, from the time I was a baby in the nursery till today, and I've been a pastor for a long time. And I will say that I feel like I'm fortunate in that this is not something that I have had to spend a lot of time dealing with in my time in church and in my time in ministry. But that doesn't mean that there haven't been those moments and there haven't been difficult relationships in my life as a pastor in the local church. And I can tell you firsthand, they're awful. And they can affect everything about your life. And they, they leave no room for contentment because when you wake up, it's the first thing you think about as you go through the day, you're reminded of it multiple times. And when you lay your head down on the pillow at night, it's the last thing you think about before you go to sleep. And so as much as it depends on you, this reminds me of Paul's words in, in Romans chapter 12. He says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with, any, with everyone. As much as it depends on you, don't let conflict steal your contentment. Do something about it. In the name of Jesus, do something about it. Be wise, and this second thing is really important in relationships, be humble in the way you 
treat people in the way you deal with people and in the way you respond to people. Be wise and really important, be humble. Look at these words on the screen from Proverbs chapter 20 and verse three. In fact, read it with me. I wanna hear your voices. Here we go. It is to a man's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. Don't be foolish. As, as much as it depends on you, when it comes to relationships in your family, in the network of your friendship, friendships, in your life as a part of a local church, don't be foolish in the way you treat or respond to other people. Don't let conflict rob you of your contentment. Here's the second word, and this is so powerful. The second word is prayer. Write that down somewhere. You scroll down a few verses from Philippians chapter four and verse two, and you find one of the greatest verses, not just in the book of Philippians, but in the entire New Testament. As Paul writes these words, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. What a great verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. See, here's the second thing. Just like conflict has the power to steal away your contentment, anxiety has the power to steal away your contentment as well. And I've got to resist the temptation to spend all the rest of my time talking about this because anxiety is such a huge issue in the world today, in our world today, in our culture, in our reality today. And we just, our staff just got back this last week from a, a day and a half staff retreat. We went down to Brown County all day Monday and half a day on Tuesday. We had a guest speaker come in to speak to us specifically about anxiety. He spoke to us about anxiety in the context of leadership anxiety. And it was incredible and it was awesome and it was uncomfortable and it was brutal and it spoke to everybody's heart. It was like drinking from a fire hose, but it was so powerful for all of us because anxiety robs you of your contentment. And we live in an age of anxiety today. We live in an age of anxiety today that is affecting all kinds of people in all kinds of ways with, with worry and stress and burnout and depression. And oftentimes in extreme cases, different levels of self-harm that people experience. And oftentimes it's anxiety over things that are foolish and even a little bit irrational I found a New York Times article written just a few weeks ago that gives an example of the crushing weight of anxiety. And please understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying this in an unkind way, but also the reality that anxiety can sometimes really be foolish and irrational. Uh, let me just read this story that I found. This past winter, Sarah Fader, a 37-year-old social media consultant in Brooklyn who has generalized anxiety disorder, texted a friend in Oregon about an impending visit. When a quick reply failed to materialize, she posted on Twitter to her 16,000 plus followers these words, I don't hear from my friend for a day, my thought, they don't want to be my friend anymore. So she sends a text to a friend in, she lives in New York, she sends a text to a friend in Oregon about an impending visit, she doesn't get an immediate reply and her response was to go on social media and say, I don't think they want to be my friend anymore. Then she, had, then she added the hashtag, this is what anxiety feels like. And this is the way it is for a lot of people. And we might be tempted to laugh at that or just you know, shake our head and dismiss it as foolish. But this is the reality of anxiety for a lot of people. Listen to me, especially young people, young adults and young people in our culture today. I'm sure that you know exactly what I'm talking about. We have 
a multi-generational church. We have a lot of young adults in our church, or, or you're the parents of young adults, and you see this in your children. Is it foolish at times? Probably. Is it irrational at times? You know, honestly, it is. But it's the reality of anxiety in the world that we live in. And it's not just young adults or one category of people, and it's not just somebody who doesn't have a lot of life experience. It can be any of us. It could be all of us. In fact, I've been going to see my radiation oncologist twice a year for over 10 years. I have to get some tests done before every visit to see him, and I get the results when I get there. Now, I don't want to misrepresent myself, and I'm even kind of hesitant to say this, but I will. I, I, I feel like that I'm someone who prays a lot in my life. I don't, please don't misunderstand me. I'm just trying to set the context for how foolish and, ira and irrational anxiety can sometimes be. I have specific times during the day when I pray, and then just like you, I pray as I'm just going through my day. I pray uh, when I'm looking out the windshield, I'm driving down the road in my car. If something comes to my mind, I just pray without ceasing the way we're told to in the New Testament. And yet, and yet, I get extremely anxious before every one of these visits to the radiation oncologist. Uh, in fact, before this last visit, uh, in the days leading up to it, there were multiple times when I thought to myself something like this, and this shows you how irrational anxiety can sometimes be. I, I literally thought something like this. You know what? In this moment, I can't really put my finger on a lot of good things that are happening in my life right now. In fact, there are some bad things happening in my life. So if there was ever going to be a time when I was going to get a bad result from the doctor, this is probably going to be it. And that's what went through my mind over and over and over again in the days leading up to that visit. Hashtag, this is what anxiety looks like. This is what anxiety feels like. The day of the visit to the doctor came and my wife Sandy was sick. She almost never gets sick. We've been married for almost 42 years. I can just count the time she's been sick, probably on one hand. But she got sick with this, this crazy cold that just hung on and hung on and hung on. So she always goes to the doctor with me, but I went by myself. And to make it even worse, the doctor that I've been seeing for over 10 years retired last summer. And so I was gonna meet a new doctor for the very first time. So I go to the cancer treatment center and they, I check in and, you know, God bless them, the woman behind the counter, she's so kind, she knows me, she's known me for a long time because, uh, you know, my experience there and they take me into the, to the room uh, and I get a nurse that is just uh, um, filling in that day and so I don't know her, but uh, after she leaves, a couple of nurses who have known me for many, many years come in and they say hi and they give me a hug and that was helpful, but I'm just sitting there with these thoughts over and over again. And so then the doctor comes in and he's no older than my son, Andrew, who was standing out here to do the communion meditation just a few minutes ago. Hashtag, this is life as a boomer. But I got the best report I'd ever gotten in my life. And yet, oh, thank you for that. And yet, and yet, here's the reality of anxiety, friends. This is what anxiety can be like for anyone. And it can feel foolish and irrational. At the same time, it feels so very real. And of all the things that can rob you of your contentment in life, just like conflict, anxiety can rob you of the contentment that God wants you to feel and experience in your life. And so, the Bible tells us 
that there are a lot of things that we can do to address anxiety, but at the top of the list, there'll always be one thing and one thing only. You know what it is? It's prayer. Because Paul writes in Philippians chapter four and verse six, and he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So what are you worried about today, this morning? What did you, you walk in worried with? Uh, the Bible doesn't specifically tell us where anxiety comes from other than it comes from some level of a lack of faith or even can come sometimes from some level of a crisis of faith. But the Bible assures us over and over again that God is sovereign and he's in control. And when we feel anxious, we need to, what am I gonna say? Pray, we need to pray. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we need to pray because we know that God is sovereign and he's always in control. I had a long phone call this last week with my brother, Kenneth. I called him specifically to talk to him because next week on Tuesday is his wife, Jolene's birthday. And it'll be the first birthday since her passing. For him, his wife of 35 years, and for their children, their three children and all their grandchildren who have known her their entire life. And then two days later, they'll celebrate their first family holiday without that wife and that mom and that grandmom there for the very first time. And so I said, I just talked to him and I asked him what anybody would ask. I said, how are you doing? And he said, we're doing okay. He said, it will be sad and there will be tears, but we're doing okay. Well, how can somebody say that? They can only say that because they know by faith that God is in control no matter how they feel in their heart in the moment. And so when anxiety comes, the first and best response to anxiety will always be prayer. Just remember that. Don't let anxiety steal away the contentment that God gives you as a believer, as a follower of Jesus. One more thing, I'll put Philippians chapter four and verse six up here from the New Living Translation because I like this, the, the direct way it reads in the NLT. I read it in the NIV earlier. But in the New Living Translation, it says, don't worry about anything, instead pray about everything. Don't you love that? Don't worry about anything, instead pray about everything. And then it goes on to say, um, well, the whole verse isn't up there, sorry. Um, so just forget what I just said. Pray about everything. Uh, we don't need anything else. Pray about everything. And, and the reason why I bring that up, uh, as I look really stupid right now, and I'm getting very anxious about that, <laughs> is I have talked to people over the years, and we'll talk about the need to pray, and they'll say something to me like this, and maybe you've been guilty of this. I, well, God's got bigger things to deal with than my problems. God's got bigger concerns, greater concerns than my concerns. And I'm going to tell you something. Are, are there things, honestly, in the world that are, are from a, just a factual standpoint, a bigger deal than what you might be experiencing in the moment? Are there, are there world issues today that are more important than how I'm feeling when I'm sitting in a waiting room at a doctor's office? Probably. But God is not any more concerned about that than he is about you. Because what you're concerned about, what you care about, God is concerned about and God cares about. And so, don't let anxiety steal your contentment. And when you feel anxious, Pray. Here's the third word, write it down somewhere. The third word is thoughts. We talk about conflict, we talk about um, anxiety, uh, and we talk about thoughts. Because thoughts, our thoughts can sometimes rob us of our contentment as well. And so we scroll down a little bit further in Philippians chapter four and we, we see verse eight, we'll put verse eight up on the screen. 
In Philippians 4, 8, Paul says, finally, brothers, I love this. This is one of the great verses in the, in the New Testament as well. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, what's he say here? Say it with me. Think about such things. Think about such things. And I'm telling you, if you want to fast track contentment in your life, then you've got to think good thoughts all the time. So I'm going to keep this real simple and, and tell you uh, two or three ways you can view this verse uh, that can help result in contentment. First of all, you just notice that Paul writes, finally, brothers, whatever is true, and then he adds with these words, think about such things. And so here's an idea that you could apply to Philippians chapter four and verse eight. Whenever you find yourself in a difficult situation where your mind is just going crazy and it threatens your contentment, whenever your mind is, is filled with the wrong kinds of thoughts, ask yourself this question, what do I know to be true about this right now? Because what did Paul say? He said, finally, brothers, whatever is true, that's the beginning, he ended with these words, think about such things. So you say, what do I know to be true about this right now? I just told you about the anxiety that I felt at my recent doctor's appointment. If I had the presence of mind, maybe I should say it like this. If I had had the presence of faith to stop and say, what do I know to be true about this doctor's appointment right now? I could have avoided a lot of that anxiety because I could have said, there is no tangible reason, no real reason at all for me to feel anxious about this because I have never had anything but a great checkup. I feel fine I've got no reason to feel this way. I've been doing this for 10 years. This is all gonna be okay. And so maybe the thing that we do with this verse is we just stop whenever, whenever we, we, we find thoughts in our mind that are robbing us from our contentment and we just, we just go through this verse and we think, for example, what do I know to be true about this today? And you can do that with every single word that Paul lists here in Philippians chapter four and verse eight. Now, some of the words are gonna be more difficult than others, but that's one simple way to direct your uh, thoughts, to take control of your thoughts in a way that doesn't steal away your contentment. Here, here's another thing you can do. Uh, sometimes what I do in my life with this verse, I love this verse, is I just, I just fast forward to the very end of the verse, okay? Where Paul says, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And here's what I do. Whenever my thoughts start to get away from me, for whatever reason, it could be anxiety, could be fear. Listen, let's be honest. Sometimes our thoughts get away from us in that we start to think about things that we shouldn't be thinking about, that are inappropriate, that are not good for God's people. Whenever that happens, I always stop. I, no, always. Sometimes I'll stop, and I try to think about something that falls into the category of excellent or praiseworthy, and I think about those things. And that helps me get my thoughts under control. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Let me give you one more op option. When you look at what Paul lists here in Philippians chapter four and verse eight uh, that we're supposed to think about, he says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, anything that is excellent or praiseworthy, those are the things that we should think about. Now you can look at those things and you can say, what do the, all those have in common? Well, here's one thing they all have in common. They all reflect the character of God. And so when we find ourselves in a difficult time and our thoughts start to betray us and betray us in a way that 
threaten to steal away our contentment, then one of the things we can do related to Philippians 4.8 is we can start to think about the truth of God. We can start to think about the honor of God, which is really what that word noble means. We can start to think about the righteousness of God. We can start to think about the purity of God and the loveliness of God and the admirable things about God and the excellence of God and the praiseworthiness of God. And if we fill our minds with those kinds of thoughts, we will not have time to be discontent. And so... This is just a simple way to recognize that God has given all of us some incredible, simple, powerful tools to help us experience contentment in our lives. And I'll just add this before we move on to the last word. Uh, This is another way to overcome anxiety because as we talked about, anxiety is such a big and a real problem. We live in an age of anxiety today and it affects all of us no matter what our age. Another way to overcome anxiety is to be really disciplined about the things you let your mind think about. And so commit to memory, Philippians chapter four and verse eight. It'll go a long way to strengthening your life. Here's the final word, it's contentment. And we see that really in verses 12 and 13 of Philippians chapter four. Paul gets really honest, kind of pulls back the curtain on his life and the reality of what's going on in his life in the moment. He says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he says those wonderful words, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, I don't know if you remember this or not, but a few weeks ago, I preached just what we call a standalone message here at Mount Pleasant on the weekend from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. And I told you that when Paul wrote the letter to the church in Philippi, he was a prisoner in Rome This letter would have been powerful and inspirational no matter where he had written it from, but the fact that he wrote it while he was a prisoner makes it even remarkable. Because as you read from chapter one through chapter four, you see that Paul chose to look at the good rather than the bad in his situation, which is another powerful element of contentment. If you can find the ability to find something good in your circumstance, even though it might be bad, then that is a strong witness of the experience of contentment in your life. I tried to show you that from Philippians chapter one in the very first part of the letter when Paul wrote these words beginning in verse 12, he said, now I want you to know brothers, he's writing this to the church in Rome while he's a prisoner. Now I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. He could have been so angry with God. I wanted to go to Rome, it was the dream of my life, but I didn't want to go in shackles as a prisoner. But instead of being angry, he chose to focus on the good things that were happening related to his witness for Christ among the palace guard and his imprisonment and the fact that it was emboldening others to preach more courageously and without fear. And that's an incredible, powerful testimony about finding contentment even in difficult moments. But since this message is a part of a stewardship series related to being faithful with with the way you handle whatever amount of money God has entrusted you, let's focus on contentment from a moment, or for a moment rather, from... Paul's confession that he has found the secret of being content whether he has a little or a lot. Uh, There are two truths about contentment related to money and possessions that I wanna drive home as we bring this to an end. So I hope that you'll write these down and you'll hang on to them. The first thing I wanna say is that Paul, as he writes here at the end of Philippians chapter four, he never says it's wrong to live in plenty. I wanna make sure that everybody hears me saying that. 
He never says it's wrong to live in plenty. You go back to Philippians chapter four and verse 12, and Paul says, I know what it is to be in need. And then he says, I know what it is to have plenty. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I'm gonna tell you flat out, friends, today, and I've told you this before, I do not believe the Bible teaches that it's wrong for anyone to live in plenty. I do not believe the Bible teaches that it's wrong for someone to be wealthy. I know some people believe that and some people teach that, but I don't. I think about verses like 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, where Paul just matter-of-factly writes these words, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides everything for our what? Say it with me, enjoyment, enjoyment. Now in that verse, Paul just in a matter-of-fact way states that there are those who are rich in this present world. And I know wealth and riches is subjective. You know, what is, what is wealth to some people is nothing to another person. And you can just talk about that all day long. So we have to understand that as we think about the word. But he just a matter of factly states that there are those who are rich in this present world. And then he adds that incredible truth that God provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Okay. When you became a Christian, you didn't sign up for a life of poverty or a life of want. That wasn't a part of the deal. What Paul does say here is that it's not wrong to be rich, it's not wrong to live in plenty, but the rich are not to be arrogant and they are not to put their hope in wealth. And so here's what we need to understand related to contentment and wealth. The contentment we feel when we live in plenty needs to be the same contentment we feel when we live in want. Because here's the truth, contentment for you and me as people of faith cannot be tied to the things of the world. It's got to be deeper than that. And that happens. We have that deeper level of contentment. We experience that deeper, satisfying, always present level of contentment in our lives when the pursuit of the ultimate sufficiency of Christ is our first priority, not the wealth of the world. Sometimes the wealth of the world will come. Some of the wealthiest people that are, have ever been, lived in history are people that you read about in the Bible. Incredibly wealthy. But if I find contentment in the things of the world, the wealth of the world, then no matter how many things I have, how much wealth I have, it's never gonna be enough for me. And it's the same for you. And you might say, well, that's not true. And I'm telling you, it's true. You know why it's true? Because God says it's true and God doesn't make mistakes. In Ecclesiastes chapter five and verse 10, we talked about this last week. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Solomon wrote these words, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. And Solomon concluded, this too is meaningless. Trying to find contentment in the things of the world is meaningless, which means it is foolish. It is a fool's pursuit. We find contentment when we pursue the sufficiency of Christ and the contentment we feel when we are living in plenty will be the same contentment we feel when we are living in want. That's the way it's supposed to be. So I'll say it again, Paul never says it's wrong to live in plenty, but con the contentment you feel needs to be the same no matter what the circumstance of your life is. Here's the second thing I want to drive home to you real quickly as we bring this to a close. I wanna say that contentment isn't the result of simply denying your feelings of want 
or desires. In other words, contentment isn't something that you and I as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, will experience simply by the sheer force of our will, our self-control, our willpower. Contentment is the result of not being controlled by those feelings of want and desire. Being content comes when you focus on what you have rather than what you want. That doesn't mean that you can't want for more. Hey, listen, I'm so glad that I don't, Sandy and I don't live in the first house that we lived in because there's a little 1,100 square foot starter house that shook every time the air conditioner came on (laughs) and had a kitchen that two people couldn't turn around in. You know, I don't want to live in that house again. Now, I'll say that, but I also tell you, if I had to live in that house again tomorrow, I'm still going to love God. I'm still going to love Jesus and I'm going to, I'm going to be content, but I don't want to live in that house. You, You feel what I'm saying, don't you? You feel me? <laughs> I want you to feel me about that. Doesn't mean you don't have to settle, you have to settle for less or you, or you can't ever or want or pursue more. It just means you can't be controlled by that pursuit and you can't be controlled by that one. If God blesses you with that, then that's wonderful. You know, when I talk to young couples, uh, a lot of times in uh, pre-marriage, premarital counseling, which I just don't, I don't do a lot of weddings. Uh, I actually, I've not done a lot of weddings my entire time here at Mount Pleasant because, you know, most people want to get married on Saturday and I got a standing work gig on Saturday with Saturday night church. But when I do, and I counsel young couples, we, we have a session where we talk about finances. And I always, tell them, I always tell them, listen, the very best thing that I can tell you about lifestyle is that you, you, the two of you need to get together. You need to sit down, and in a real honest and open way, you need to, to figure out what level of lifestyle you want to live as a married couple and one day as a, as a family. You just decide what level of lifestyle you want to live. And when I say lifestyle, what kind of home you want to live in, what kind of amenities uh, and furnishings you want in that home, the kind of cars that you want to drive, the kind of vacations that you want to take, everything associated with lifestyle, just to, to settle on, a, on what is a comfortable lifestyle for you. But once you get there, once you get to the place where that's what you're experiencing, just be committed to staying there. Just stay there. And if you do that, You achieve this lifestyle that you together thoughtfully and prayerfully decided on. If you get there and you you find yourself in that situation, then here's the best thing that's gonna happen. You stay in that lifestyle, then there's gonna be a growing margin of finances in your life. And the margin I'm talking about is uh, the amount of money that comes into your life compared to the amount of money that goes out to pay for your life. And if you can stay in that one place there and be content, then there's gonna be a growing margin of finances in your life. And that growing margin of finances is gonna serve you well for the rest of your life. It's gonna help you to save for the future and it's gonna help you be generous. And listen to me, it might not be God's will for all of us that we, we be wealthy, but it is God's will for all of us that we be generous. Every last one of us. It, and generosity is not tied to the amount that you have, which is the mistake so many people make. We'll talk about generosity next week. But if you can avoid that lifestyle creep that overcomes our culture to where people, the more they make, the more they spend, then you can find a place of great, great financial contentment in your life. So I've had people ask me many times over the years, is it wrong for a Christian to pursue success and wealth? And I always say, absolutely not. As long as you first and foremost are committed to the pursuit of Christ and you are willing to embrace what the Bible says about being a faithful steward Sometimes I've said to people, listen, 
God doesn't ask you or me or anyone to embrace a vow of poverty, but he asks all of us to embrace a vow of generosity. And so here's the question. Are you going to be able to do that? Are you going to handle what God entrusts to you in a way that allows you to do that? Because if the pursuit of money and things stifle your generosity, then you got a problem. You got a big contentment problem. And you need to recognize that. You know, listen, friends, we live in a world that's just gone mad when it comes to money. Wouldn't you agree with that? You probably saw this a couple of weeks ago. Texas A&M University fired their football coach, Jimbo Fisher. Now, Sandy and I lived in Texas for many, many years. She lived there for 22 years. I lived there for 17 years. We have family members that went to A&M. We have a lot of friends that went to A&M. I'm not picking on A&M, so don't get mad at me about this, okay? I'm not. Um, but they hired Jimbo Fisher thinking that he was going to bring a national championship uh, football team to the university. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but when they first fired him, they had a, national cha- a football national championship plaque made up just the way the NCAA would do it. And they gave it to him when they introduced him. The only thing that was missing was the date of when this would happen. They were so confident they were going to win a national championship that they did that in advance. But here, less than six years later, they're firing him. But here's the thing about it. You know what they're doing? They're paying him $76 million to go away. I thought everybody would gasp. They're paying him, they're, they're paying him $76 million to no longer be their football coach. And again, I'm not picking on AM because this is the same crazy financial contract buyout thing that all major colleges have with their coaches and all professional teams have with their coaches. But when I when I read that they were firing him and they were willing to pay him a $76 million buyout, you know what my first thought was? My first thought was literally, this is obscene. But it shows you how messed up our world is when it comes to money. And the only way that you or me or anyone is gonna be able to have a proper view of money that's gonna result in contentment in our lives is by believing and practicing the instructions of the Bible with regard to money. And that's just got to be one of the commitments of our lives. So we need to honor Jesus by handling money in a faithful way. We need to be good owners, or I mean, we need to understand that God owns everything. Everything belongs to him. We need to be good stewards, good managers of what he's entrusted to us. We need to strive for contentment in our lives that comes from Jesus and not from the things of the world. And we need to be generous. When you came in today, and I'm gonna close, you were given one of these commitment cards. We do this every November. If you're a guest or a first-time visitor, I hope you stayed and you didn't just like experience massive anxiety the whole time because <laughs> you thought you weren't gonna get out without signing one of these things. That's not the case. But for those of you who are members and longtime attenders, you know what this is. Every year we challenge our people to be good stewards. The ministry of Mount Pleasant Christian Church is big. It's big and it stretches around the world simply because the people of Mount Pleasant Christian Church are generous. And so we're calling upon that generosity again. I want you to take this home. I want you to pray about it. And we'll be talking more about that next week. But let's make sure that we handle money in a way that honors God. And let's make sure that we handle money in a way that adds to doesn't steal away or rob us of the contentment that God wants all of us to experience. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you so much, and we're thankful every time we get to open up the Bible and talk about the truth of your word in a practical and applicable way. And I pray for anybody here today who might be um, not experiencing contentment in their life, whether it be from conflict in their life or whether it be from anxiety. 
Lord, or whether it be from thoughts that are just out of control, a mind filled with all the wrong kinds of things, or whether it be with financial stress and really the knowledge that they're not handling what you've entrusted to them very well. And I pray that you speak right to their heart today and you give them the, the conviction to say, you know what, I'm gonna quit doing things my way and I'm gonna start doing things God's way in every area. We're so grateful that you speak to all the needs of our life. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 